Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now, let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. In 1976, the band Boston released their self-titled debut album. Powered by the sublime majesty of the song More Than a Feeling, one of the greatest arena rock anthems of all time, the album became an overnight sensation and, and one of the biggest selling albums of the 1970s. They were no one-hit wonder, though. The album spawned monster rock radio hits such as Peace of Mind and Foreplay Long Time and was a constant presence on album-oriented rock radio of the time. In later years, as classic rock radio became a genuinely popular radio format, every single one of the album's eight tracks became mainstays of classic rock radio to the point that it's fair to say the album is essentially a greatest hits collection. However, critics were never really enamored with Boston, the band, in the 1970s, and as time continues to slip into the 21st century, they're one of the most critically panned and ridiculed bands of all time. Seriously, to say you like Boston and their debut album in front of any music journalist or media member is to really put your neck on the line. And it isn't just critics, either. Younger generations of hipster music geeks love to trash the band as well, and they do so with a glee that matches their dislike of The Eagles, another band that this podcast has defended in the past. So, why all the hate? Well, we plan to delve into that in this episode, as well as provide a track-by-track analysis and breakdown of this much derided and very underrated classic album. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report as we bring you In Defense of Boston's Boston. Yes, really. So our uh, building off your intro, uh, here's a little story for you that I like to tell. So uh, let's go back to the spring of 1998. Uh-huh. I am a cub reporter for the newspaper in Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh-huh. uh, for any of our listeners who may have also been cub reporters, you know, like uh, like basically the first two years in the newspaper, you will uh, know or remember that you spend a lot of time in your car. <laughs> and it can get boring when you're taking those long drives to your next story. So uh, I had a tape deck. I was uh, renting a Dodge Neon and with a tape deck. And so I had figured I needed some tapes. And so there was a, a indie music store, a really cool little music store in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I went in there and 
lo and behold, for like four ninety nine, there was uh, Boston's first album, <laughs> uh, self titled yes. record, Boston. And I was like, hey, I like I like some of their songs. I mean, I, you know, I, I could stand to you know just have have that on, on the ready, and you know yeah. learn learn more about this record because at the time it was like number six or number seven on the uh, the all time uh, shipped uh, records on the RIAA list. Yeah, uh, like sixteen or seventeen million. It's still at seventeen million, but uh, yeah. But at the time, it was like way up there, and so like, okay, cool. So start listening to it. It's like, oh well, obviously know that song. You know, the big hit is first there. Oh, I know that song. <laughs> wait, wait a second. So it's an eight track record. I get the track seven. Like I know all these songs, and then it ends with the ballad, and I'm like, wait a second. All eight of these songs are on heavy rotation on every classic rock station that I've listened to within the last five years. Yeah. And then I realized, and then it just it dawned on me. I started my uh, uh, classic rock station in Houston uh, area where I live uh, has is under new ownership and has gotten much better, uh, mm. which means they're playing more Boston, which means pretty much all eight of these songs are still on the damn air. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's a, a, a testament to the undying power of this record. But Unfortunately, and one of the things that spawned this uh, this episode, obviously, is the fact that if you are under the age of 45, which we're not, uh, yeah. y- you probably have not heard of Boston outside of sentences that don't also include uh, foreigner kick uh, sticks and Kansas. <laughs> or you may have heard of Boston only in the context of that video game Guitar Hero that has yeah. more than a feeling on it. <laughs> yeah, a- a- absolutely. And and uh, and. And Guitar Hero had uh, had reputation for, you know, here's uh, like Mississippi Queen. Now, here's other classic rock songs that everybody else thinks that sucks, but is at least fun to play on fake guitars, <laughs> you know. But, hey, we're going to do this is an ode to real guitars, specifically from the uh, from the talent and the mind of Tom Schultz. So, Arturo, uh, this is going to be fun, isn't it? Yeah. The only other band I can think of. Uh, who has albums where in t- like, like all the songs from an album get played on classic rock radio is Led Zeppelin. That's the only band yeah. I can think of. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, well, even, even then it's uh, yeah, maybe Led Zeppelin two. I mean, at, at least seven Led of Zeppelin the nine. Four. Led Zeppelin yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I, you never hear four sticks from, uh, from Zeppelin four, but Zeppelin two, uh, you hear at least eight of those songs, and for the more sophisticated stations, yeah, you you actually hear uh, "Bring It On Home," too. Yeah. So that's about the closest corollary. I mean, unless you're talking about like the Eagles' greatest hit, seventy-one to seventy-five, which I guess is right. cheating, or right. or even "Hotel California." You hear seven of those nine songs. So, mm-hmm. you know, go go figure. So uh, this is one of the al- we're, we're we're defending one of the albums you don't actually need to own, but <laughs> uh, but you, but you probably should. It's a good idea. Uh, we love Boston. You should love Boston too. Don't listen to the haters. And so this is going to be this is going to be interesting. Uh, I will say this though, you know, you, you know, there is a place where uh, this album gets no hate whatsoever, right? Wait, now, where is that? Oh, I, I believe it's this uh, place that we call this the uh, the parallel universe. <laughs> that uh, there's a rip in the space-time continuum and we get to go over to the other side and over there, rock is predominant, rock rules, long live rock on the billboards, in the arenas, on the covers of the magazines and yeah, actually there's such a thing as magazines still 
in uh, in the parallel universe. Uh, and so this is our celebration of the stuff we think should be uh, up there with Taylor Swift uh, of modern times. Uh, we, you know, in, in, in an ideal world, in a parallel universe, uh, these artists uh, that we talk about on this segment uh, would rule and would be huge. And we want you to know about them because they do not deserve to uh, to uh, dwell in obscurity. And so uh, this week, uh, Arturo, you're actually covering a, a, an album and an artist that's starting to get some attention, but is still parallel enough, correct? Yeah, I'm not quite jumping into the parallel universe here, if I must be honest. In fact, I'm making a bit of an exception and staying a bit in our universe for now. Uh, for the past seven years or so, the Japanese-American singer-songwriter Mitsuki has grown a small but very devoted cult following for her brand of very, and I would argue overly, theatrical art pop and uh, overly sentimental breakup songs that recently had seen her delve headfirst into Broadway-style musicals yeah. and show-tune affectations. Bugga, bugga. Fucking, fucking yuck. Yeah. And honestly, I'm not enough of a fan of hers to hypothetically wish she were a bigger superstar in our parallel universe <laughs> concept. Yeah. So in the real universe, shall Mitski remain? However, as I am wont to say... The sun shines on a dog's ass every now and then. Yep. And the sun has definitely shined on Mitski and her latest album, The Land is Inhospitable and So Are We. The reviews of this record have focused on how this is Mitski's venture into Americana music forms, uh, such as country and folk music. While this is indeed true, the album succeeds for a very simple reason. The fact that Mitski has seemingly learned a vital lesson in brevity. Uh, Mitski's songs in general are inherently so maudlin, so melodramatic, and so indulgent in their sentimentality that any track that goes beyond four or five minutes is like eating too much sugary food in one sitting yeah. <laughs> and then throw in heaps of thick, lumpy honey on top of all that. <laughs> Yep. Not a not a single song on this album reaches the four minute mark. And in fact, most of the tracks are three minutes or shorter. In addition, the syrupy smothering string arrangements from her previous work are tempered down and more tastefully done this time, serving the songs rather than suffocating them. Yes, as usual, all the songs are about her ruminating on her broken heart. Seriously, what Mitski songs aren't about her heart being broken all the time? Yeah, pretty much. She must she must be the most annoyingly high maintenance person to be in a relationship with. <laughs> <God>. Yeah, steer <laughs> clear, baby, steer clear. <laughs> yeah, nevertheless, brevity and restraint have made her latest songs more appealing and frankly more relatable. The listener isn't being pummeled over the head with her relentless sadness. And the spaciousness in the music allows not just the music itself to breathe, the songs themselves to breathe, but the listener to live in the songs without being without feeling choked out by overwrought emotion. Recommended tracks, the beautiful hymnal quality of the opening track, Bug Like an Angel, where Mitski warns that broken promises can break you right back. 
uh, uh, Buffalo replaced with its doomy acoustic guitar riff that rides the song along with its haunting piano crescendo and heaven, which glides through the air with its, well, heavenly vocal melody and lush but not overly lush string section that provides a moving middle section. It isn't quite in my top 10 of the year, but the fact, and it, but it is close and uh, very close actually. But the fact that I'm recommending a Mitski album at all is evidence that it's one worth checking out. Chris? Yeah, there's a real evolution here. Uh, Mitski is a folk country chanteuse. Who knew? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's some real 70s singer songwriter Topanga Canyon type of stuff uh, on sure. here. But sure. I, I think that you extracted the larger headline, which is discipline and focus. Yeah, uh, which, like you said, you know, she's there's a uh, there's this um, new genre or this uh, new field of overrated Asian-American women. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Japanese breakfast comes to mind uh, Ugh, as well. I, Japanese breakfast sucks, though. Yeah. And, and well, most of these artists, I mean, you know, they get love, uh, but I never really understood it until now. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, you can't say that she's untalented, but now she's got, you know, she's found a lane where it really makes sense. If you're going to talk about your broken heart, get rid of all the saccharin and all the all the layers of slop. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I really like the single, uh, my love, mine, all mine, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, just reached the, the billboard hot 100. Uh, really? so it's, yeah, it's her first hot 100. So yeah, it's actually a, a, a modest, uh, hit single and it's mm-hmm. very, very reminiscent of mind games era. John Lennon, actually, it's sure. just, you know, sweetly melodic. It's twangy, it's gentle, and it's only two minutes and 17 seconds long. Uh, take take that, Paul McCartney, and your PR campaign to reduce John Lennon's legacy. A yeah. John Lennon sound alike song on the charts. How about that? Yeah, hey, go figure. Uh, and so, yep, two minutes and seventeen seconds. It's it's quite lovely. And there, there there's there's a few other uh, songs I like on here. I don't know if it'll reach my top ten. I, I don't think that uh, you know al- albums like this uh, they need to be a lot more melodic and a lot more dramatic. You know, like the one that you covered uh, last time from Margot Silker uh, yeah. com- comes to mind. It has to be a little bit more pronounced for it to rise on my radar. But hey, uh, I got to give it up for her. Uh, you know she's she's kind of got a star quality, and now she's got a star vehicle. So more power yeah. to her. And so we go from something that uh, I guess you couldn't call a star vehicle, but it would have been like an indie credibility vehicle uh, had uh, she not uh, tragically died of a uh, drug overdose in August of 2022. Uh, we're talking about uh, a, a jazz trumpet player, or I mean, I guess calling her a jazz trumpet player is a little bit reductive, but uh, her name was Jamie Branch. And uh, this album is called Fly or Die or Die Fly or Die World War and World War uh, in parentheses. Uh, uh, Ms. Branch was based in Brooklyn after 10 years in Boston, Chicago and Baltimore. She was educated at the New England Conservatory of Music. And yes, she was a virtuoso trumpet player. uh, And uh, but it's not the kind of formalist or tasteful or uh, master's thesis kind of stuff that you tend to get these days in 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 jazz it's kind of you know, there's no like larger point there's uh, you know it's not a you can't even a lot of jazz these days it's not even unified song cycle so much as movements yeah and uh most of them frankly are closer to bowel movements than jazz movements yeah boring as fuck basically yeah 
yeah, pretty yeah, pretty much. I mean, there were a couple of exciting ones last year, but generally they don't they kind of fall by the wayside. Uh, this one doesn't. I mean, look, if this thing is a master's thesis, then the graduate school might as well have been located on Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very spacey uh, record and just really adventurous. And it's it's got touches of EDM. It's got touches of Afrobeat. It actually uh, uh, goes into and delves into uh influences that are kind of in the ironic indie folk or indie rock uh, uh, genre. Like there's uh, some almost uh, that, that sort of uh, very intelligent dopiness that you would get from a modest mouse or a neutral milk hotel. Dude, dude, she covers the meat puppets on this album. Yeah, I know. I I know. (laughs) So, so yeah. So that kind of shows you where, where, where she's at. So, you know, but there's EDM. I mean, so it's it's actually a pretty varied record. It's, it's nine songs and 47 minutes. Uh, my personal favorites and the ones I would re- uh, recommend are the uh, the two standouts or the two nine minute jammy ones, which are named Burning Gray and Baba Louie, not Baba Bowie, Baba Louie, <laughs> uh, where she really gets to show off her, her chops as a player. She really was a virtuoso and pretty exciting uh, player. Uh, the former song there, Burning Gray, it's, it's rollicking Afrobeat and uh, just really... Uh, it's 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 music to to smoke pot and uh, take a load off to, uh, <laughs> you know, it really is. It gets up there. And then the second one is actually interesting because it's more akin to sort of Paul Simon or Herb Albert, easy listening uh, AOR feel goodism, but but done in a sharp, uh, a sharper way. It's, it's, it's just very sharp and it's very efficient. And you know, I really like it. Uh, and you got to say, it's a real shame that most indie critics and podcasts like ours uh, seem to be discovering uh, Jamie Branch after her untimely death. And she really had a lot to offer and likely would have gained more traction as a hip go-to for this type of jazz fusion listening experience. I mean, she had a series of records that all had this sort of uh, riff on that fly or die uh, thing. And so this is my favorite one, fly or die, or hey, die fly. Uh, kind of fun. Well, we do have this record that we can chew on uh, at least. Uh, give it time. It's one of these albums that uh, uh, multiple listens are rewarding. It took me a little while to build up to this. I would give it, it's a solid three and a half to four star record. Uh, and in this year of pretty good, that's pretty good. Arturo? Yeah. Before I get into the album, I just want to say that if she hadn't died last year, I don't think mainstream music media would have written about this album at all. Probably not. I'm sure, I'm sure within jazz circles, and within jazz buffs, you know, people were writing about her or whatnot. But mainstream music media, not at all, would they have picked up on this had she not died. This is like her epitaph. Um, yeah. The album itself, I think, is pretty good. I think it's really uneven. I think it lacks cohesiveness. And uh, there's some tracks. A couple of tracks are really great. And a co- several tracks have great parts to them. Yeah. For example, the one one of the ones you mentioned, "Burning Gray," I think is the best song on the album from yeah. top to bottom. Is the one that works best as a composition and as a jam session as well. I think "Baba Louie," which you mentioned, Afrobeat. I think more like Latin music. I think yeah. the first half of "Baba Louie" is really good. It's like sped up Colombian cumbia beats. Yeah, that's fair. And, and uh, and it and it really kind of like just you know, trudges along. You can kind of dance to it. And then the second half of the of that track goes into just you know atonal scronking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets a little completely d, which yeah. I'm not a big fan of. But Burning Gray works really well um, all the way through. The Mountain, which is basically a cover of a Meat Puppet song, 
mm-hmm. and uh, from their 1994 album "Too High to Die." It's the very last track on the album. It's it's an interesting take on the song, but it doesn't really fit the album. No, it, it, it doesn't. Been, it would have been better as an outtake or a B side to a single. Yeah, it, it probably should have been the album closer because right, you know, maybe <laughs> kind of a kind of a wink, wink, cheek, cheeky kind of note uh, to end right, the record exactly. on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, take over the world toward the end of the record. Uh, it's, it's got this outrageous kind of almost a dance jazz song. Yeah. But it doesn't quite get over there because it just doesn't hold together as much. And and that's what, what like this whole album is just doesn't hold together as much as you want it to. It's almost yeah. there. It almost gets there. Not quite. Um, and I like it, but not love it. Although I think yeah. Burning Gray is one of the better individual tracks that you'll hear this out this year. Yeah. So if, if, if you're a Spotify individual song kind of person, check out Burning Gray. Great track. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. No people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun you don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose, or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. All right. So, Chris, we, we both love this album by Boston, their debut album for Classic from 76, but a whole lot of people don't, you know? Right? Yeah, that, 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 that is true. Uh, this is one of those albums that kind of like, you know, uh, to borrow a... Uh, to borrow a, a Mickey Dolan's line when uh, Spock becomes a Vulcan or when Leonard Nimoy becomes a Vulcan. Yeah. Uh, instead of Spock, it's Leonard Nimoy. And so it's kind of like one of these things of be careful what you invent, you know, people might hold it against you. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's the case uh, with Boston and uh, I'll, I'll start this. And so this is kind of scouring the, uh, the internets for uh, commentaries and dialectics about this record and its supposed crappiness. Uh, so let me start with, uh, with a piece or a, an excerpt from a piece that a very good, uh, rock journalist and writer, Stephen Hyden, uh, mm-hmm. wrote for the AV club back in 2012. Uh, Hyden now works for Uproxx. So I definitely recommend that you check out his work plus his podcast. Uh, uh, he writes about, uh, about Boston this way, quote, those predisposed to hate classic rock normally dismiss Boston as a cookie cutter corporate rock devoid of personality or heart. It's true. The spotless perfection of Boston's late 70s albums. Okay, that's generous. But anyway, uh, the late 70s albums doesn't exactly sound human. If the Stooges and Black Sabbath exist on one end of the rock and roll grittiness scale, Boston surely must be placed on the far opposite end. Uh, Boston and Don't Look Back, which was the second record, uh, are the antithesis of music that's idealized for its sloppy in the moment liveliness. Uh, Tom Schultz preferred the orderliness of a laboratory and the, mytholo- the methodology of a scientist. His songs sounded as if they were assembled according to well-tested theorems and then sent off to hermetically sealed packages. It was as wild and inappropriate as a bottle of aspirin. 
uh, which to me, <laughs> to me is a good line. I know a lot of people say that about Steely Dan, but uh, yeah. But well, I think it, I say that about late period Steely Dan. Yeah, late period Steely Dan for sure. And uh, but but I think that in, in a way that's almost complimentary. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's kind of where the derision uh, comes from. And so let's talk about that derision. Uh, you don't necessarily see it from critics, and this surprised me. I thought I would was would see uh, direct uh, reviews or retrospectives of this album, Boston's uh, Boston by mainstream critics or by pitchfork or by uh even stuff like far out or american songwriter albums like that no no you're not going to find those exist i think that like legit critics are like even if it's begrudgingly or at least admiring of, right. of the album uh and so what you re- but what it re- really comes up is like when people want to trash all of the bands that came after boston yeah. or if if like you know you know let's say a band like Red van fleet it's like, oh, oh, they're the worst of the you know generic. They're like Zeppelin, Boston, Kansas, foreigner wannabes, you know. Yeah. And so, and so it's kind of like a shorthand for this sucks. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of where it comes up. And so, uh, scouring some boards and some blogs for some some lines here. So this comes from a Reddit board uh, and uh, from a a poster na- uh, who goes by Psyched Vinyl Fan ninety nine. He mm. he says. Uh, and this is about more than a feeling quote. The song is literally the most cookie cutter AOR song of all time. The song is also repetitive as well. It's extremely overplayed as well. The lyrics are superly annoying as well. More than a feeling. Shut up. Uh, this, this guy, not, was, not, the, not the smartest uh, thing to uh, review, shall we say? Yeah. Let's just put it this way. A big fan of as well. If, if, if somebody's going to use as well uh, three times in a review, you probably might want, want to take them seriously. Talk about being repetitive. Yeah, but don't bump. Uh, so now we go to a writer named uh, J. Eric Smith, who says Boston has always been the embodiment of cold, calculating corporate rock. Uh, this is uh, this is a guy who actually uh, I believe he did a uh, an exercise where he had a. Um, a bracket for the worst uh, rock and roll band of all time or the, or the, <laughs> su- the suckiest band of all time. And uh, Boston made the quarterfinals. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Now, uh, now you get, but, but some fans have a little bit more acid and are orig- a little bit more original in their beatdowns. Uh, this is uh, a guy named, uh, this is from a site called Moronica, M-O-R-O-N-I-K-A, which amazingly enough is a three stooges fan site and community. <laughs> And uh, this is a guy that goes by Shemps one. Get it? Shemps. Uh, and uh, but this this is a line that at least it's funny. Quote, Boston had succeeded despite piss poor instrumental playing, shitty songwriting and singing that made one hit wonder slash transvestite Sylvester seem masculine by comparison. Do it <laughs> doing part to Schultz and his ultra slick producing. Uh, that's a good line. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll hand it to him. Then there's uh, there was one. uh there's a, a site out there called Steve Hoffman's rock forums, which is, as it sounds, it's community forums for posters. It's, you know, user generated content. And somebody put out there said, what do we think about Tom Schultz in Boston? And like several people in a row uh, put overrated, overrated, overrated to which this one guy named dad on red, he comes in and says underproductive. Uh, <laughs> underproductive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so which which in in a way is kind of a twisted genius way of saying yeah that doesn't really do it for me <laughs> you know it's an underproductive record uh which 
you know, I, I honestly, you know, obviously he's wrong, but uh, it's it's a pretty good pretty good shot. And then from a message board called SportsJournalist.com, a poster says that uh, this album is quote unquote the paragon of pretentious studio perfection until Axl Rose took the mantle for all times. <laughs> <laughs> So that's so well. That's, I mean, you know, you know me. I, I I live in the island of Guns N' Roses is one of the most overrated bands of all time. So I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I think that's fodder for a future episode where me and you go mano y mano over Appetite for Destruction, uh, <laughs> for sure. And so so yeah. So so Tom Schultz uh, and Axl Rose getting hate uh, in the same sentence. Yeah. Uh, but and then you know you do get some damning with faint praise, or you do get some critical beat down from the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, ben Ratliff of the New York Times, one of the best jazz uh, uh, critics in America, but he also uh, is pretty well versed in in rock and roll. So he did a uh, review of of an album that Boston put out in 2013 called Life, yeah. Love, and Hope, oh, and, God, uh, yeah. <laughs> and 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 he 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 writes. Uh, Quote, few will complain about any subpar Boston albums cheapening the band's legacy, partly because this record, and to some degree the whole band's career, reduces one man's inward hobby, a project of self-satisfaction. So <laughs> kind of kind of saying, hey, maybe that was good, but you know, let, let's let's put down the guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as 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 being a, a lone, tall, ugly weirdo that uh, you know, you know, geeky, geeky engineer does well. Uh, yeah. And so kind of, you know, let's put the guy down. And I mean, even the attempts at defending this record really sound horrifying. I mean, it's just like, yeah. you know, guys like try to get out there. And uh, there's uh, one, one side I saw where it says, uh, quote unquote, I mean, it's like freaking Paul Revere and the Raiders recording Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, who, who the hell else would have even thought this ever or even like wanted to make this connection? I mean, that just that just sounds hideous. I mean, yeah, I know just, it doesn't match the music at all. No, it doesn't. And I'm like, where the fuck is this coming from? And so yeah. and so this this all, by the way, is really an exercise in consider the source. And yeah. I think what we're getting at is that that Boston and this this record kind of became this poster child for quote unquote corporate rock, or kind of the generic, the cookie cutter, the you know the the sweet, uh, you know it's it's basically the equivalent of like Nestle's chul- uh, in in the uh, the DNA. It's it's like Nestle's uh, Toll House morsels, yeah, you know, and it's kind of like the equivalent of that. But there's a couple of really smart comebacks. It's from the Steve Hoffman's Rock Forums. A couple of smart comebacks on that one guy, Nate, who goes by Bang says Max, mm-hmm. as in Bang says Max. It, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. He says, "Did the whole corporate rock thing exist before Boston? Not to my knowledge. And if that's the case, then we're saying that a guy making music part time in his basement studio in 1975 created this musical entity that emphasizes production, perfection, and slickness. Even if you don't like the music." You got to hand it to the guy for being an innovator. As someone alluded to previously on this thread, this was as DIY as any punk record. It just didn't sound DIY. Yeah, good which point. Which is true. And then yeah. another poster on Steve Hoffman's music forum, uh, DK Monroe, he says, I think we tend to read backwards into Boston's aesthetics. There's no way that Schultz was sitting in his basement recording smoking, thinking, I'm going to translate rock music into a corporate workplace friendly form starting with this here song about smoking dope. <laughs> <laughs> he 
<laughs> yeah. So kind of gets at the absurdity uh, of the arguments. And so uh, that's really a cross section of the kind of stuff that's out there uh, about yeah. this record. And I guess you could call it a mild controversy, but uh, but the whole uh, Boston sucks thing uh, yeah. is is so kind of in the atmosphere that it doesn't really come from the primary sources. It's just sort of become this like kind of stackable thing. It, it just it, hipster hipsters who hate classic rock. Basically. Yeah. It, yeah, essentially. <laughs> but I've worked with people, uh, you know, in my journalism career and even my post journalism career, my, some of my legal, uh, you know, and you know, lawyers like to think of themselves as like uh, as as like hobbyist music critics yeah. in some ways. And they all have this Boston sucks notion, too, or like, <laughs> you know, you know, make it stop, make it stop. I'm like, no, actually, turn it up, turn it up. I mean, so right. that's what we're, we're saying. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm saying you have a you you, you have a contribution, don't you? Yeah, thing? there is one music critic out there who back in the in, in the day, 1976, didn't love Boston, nor did he hate them. And who's you know that? who that was, Chris? Who's that? Robert Criscow from, from New York's Village Voice. Bob Criscow returns. This yeah. is his one sentence review. <laughs> when informed that someone has achieved an American synthesis of Led Zeppelin and yes, all I can do is hold my ears and say, gosh, C. <laughs> okay. I uh, never <laughs> quite thought of that way. Let Led Zeppelin and yes. Uh, that that makes a lot more sense than Paul Revere and the Raiders and Pink <laughs> Floyd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although I don't know. Yes, yes is a little bit of an overstatement. Uh, well, no, I, I, I can hear a lot of yes, especially in foplay long time. The oh, intro. yeah. Oh, a lot yeah. of that keyboard stuff that Schultz is doing. Yeah, a lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the showier, yeah, overdub kind of stuff, but maybe yeah. not in the space rock in necessarily. But yeah, yeah. Uh, if we're talking about overdubs heaven, then that yeah. that, that surely, uh, surely yeah. is the case. So uh, that said, we've set it up with the dialectic to kind of get into this record. Uh, Arturo, uh, tell us about this band and the backstory of how this wonderful album came to be. It's actually a pretty fascinating backstory uh, for a band that uh, a lot of in pretentious indie hipster douchebags don't like. Any narrative regarding the band Boston begins and probably ends with the band's founder, guitarist, principal songwriter, producer, sonic architect, and overall leader, Tom Schultz. Schultz, who was originally from Toledo, Ohio, went to MIT in Boston for both his bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering. He's an, an official smart guy, <laughs> a classically trained pianist and talented guitarist in his own right. He started writing music when he uh, started his graduate studies in MIT in 1969 and within a year had joined a band called Freehold, along with singer Brad Delp, guitarist Barry Goudreau and drummer Jim Mazdia. After finishing his graduate studies, Schultz got a job at Polaroid. Yes, kids, back in the old days, photos were taken with cameras that used film. And there were entire companies that were based around the sale of these devices. Back to the story. <laughs> uh, he must have made quite a bit of money from his day job because he was able to build a practice room and a rudimentary recording studio in his basement, complete with a professional 12-track tape recorder, and was able to finance demo tape recordings in his basement. 
The aforementioned members of Freehold were used for these sessions, but there was no record label interest. In 1973, Schultz formed the band Mother's Milk with Delp, Goudreau, and Mazdia. And while the band dissolved by 1974, Schultz kept on working with the same crew. And by 1975, six of the eight songs that would end up on the album... Boston's Boston, had already been finished. Schultz knew a co-worker at Polaroid whose cousin worked at ABC Records, and with a little bit of networking, the demo was sent to ABC. Soon enough, Charlie McKenzie, a Boston-area representative for ABC, got a hold of the tape and fell in love with it, along with Paul Ahern, a close friend and California record promoter. They agreed to shop the demo tape around and split whatever proceeds may come if a major label became interested. Basically, they became Schultz's co-managers. Alas, uh, Epic Records was interested and wanted to sign the band on the condition that Schultz and whatever band he had could perform an audition in front of a group of Epic executives so they could <laughs> see what they really had in their hands. Drummer Jim Mazdia had lost interest in the band at this point and was replaced by Sib Hashian, while bassist Fran Sheehan augmented the band that performed before these epic executives in late 1975 at a Boston warehouse that doubled as Aerosmith's practice facility. Nice. How about that for some trivia? Yep. It's telling that the band still didn't have a name when the contract with Epic was finalized, and the only musicians who were contracted to Epic at this time were Tom Schultz and singer Brad Delp, who wrote one song and co-wrote another while Schultz wrote everything else. Like several other major record labels at the time, Epic, which at the time was a subsidiary of Columbia Records, insisted that their artists and bands record their albums at the label's own studio in Los Angeles. Yeah, this is great. There was to be no exception for Tom Schultz and his then unnamed band. Epic wanted Schultz and the band to pack everything up and relocate to Los Angeles in order to re-record the songs on the demo that the day uh, the songs from the demo that the label liked so much. Schultz, however, as would be seen and proven in the ensuing years, was quite the autocrat and quite dictatorial in his ways and insistent in not re-recording the album, feeling that what he provided to the label was good enough as the finished product. Fortunately for Schultz, producer John Boylan, who was tapped by Paul Ahern, the California record promoter, who helped Schultz get his record deal and to oversee. Uh, he got uh, Boylan to oversee the album's production. Um, Boylan understood Schultz's need for complete control and came up with a ruse to fool the record company. <laughs> the whole band, minus Schultz, would fly out to L.A. to make epic think that the band was at, at at a Columbia Records recording studio recording the album. Meanwhile, Schultz and Boylan would stay behind in Boston and just basically spruce up the finished demos in Schultz's home basement and hire a remote truck from Providence, Rhode Island that would contain a two-inch 24-track deck. A wire would snake from Schultz's basement into the truck 
uh, the truck feed into the deck. Basically, they resubmitted the same instrumental tracks they recorded in Schultz's basement a year earlier with just a few edits and overdubs here and there. The tapes were sent to Los Angeles where Brad Delp put down all his brand new vocals in quick order and mixing was done by producer John Boylan. When everything was completed, the album cost only a few thousand dollars to make, which was in stark (laughs) contrast to how record labels at the time would spend upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars on a recording. Million. Yeah. 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 Boylan was instrumental in another way. It was his idea to name the band Boston. Uh, The band coalesced around their new name, around Schultz's chosen album cover depicting a spaceship containing the city of Boston escaping into the cosmos and around each other as a tight live unit that would take the music from this self-titled debut album released in August 1976 to the concert masses and supported by constant radio airplay. The rest is history. Chris? Well, you you do know that those spaceships are actually guitars, right? <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you look closely, they are guitars that have blue smoke and, oh. uh, and, and blue light shows coming out of the strings. Smoking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the guitar as spaceship, which is a perfect visual to describe uh, this band. I love that story, by the way, that they uh, <laughs> that, that they just kind of hung out in the studio while Schultz kind of you know stayed in his basement. Uh, you know, that's 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 quite the ruse. And uh, it you know, th- there's a, a, a another ruse that this can be kind of con- you know compared, contrasted to. Uh, so Todd Rundgren. Uh, he made his, I believe it's 72, isn't it? Uh, something, anything. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he made that uh, record uh, mostly in his apartment or at least three of the four sides of that double album he made in his apartment. But, and so that sounds cool and DIY but it, it, until you realize that he mostly quote unquote borrowed equipment from the real studio and took it home with him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Schultz, and, Schultz didn't do that. That, that was no, all his Schultz, equipment. That was all his. And it was a 12, it was a 12 track tape recorder, which at that point was a little bit antiquated. Yeah. Uh, you had started to move up to 16 and you, you started to move up to the real fancy stuff. And so mm-hmm. the fact that he was able to get what he got out of a 12 track tape recorder in his yeah. basement, ostensibly yeah. working by himself, because he played almost all the instruments. I mean, there's yes, there's a couple of drum parts and a couple of bass parts that were done by the other guys, but he yeah. does everything. On, yeah. on that album except uh, vocals <laughs> well duh yeah i mean that's brad delp uh he yeah. just didn't have the uh, he just didn't have the jufro for that you know <laughs> he, he, you know, he had to come in and, and you know and, and delp had to get that fro it's the power brad of delp the by the way was not jewish he was of uh i know french canadian descent i know i know i'm just saying <laughs> but but even though i mean you know french canadians can have awesome j fro's too you know <laughs> uh true. yeah but but that that's where the soul came from was from the fro uh, so yeah, just, just really, uh, remarkable, uh, story. I mean, it just, when you, when you talk about everything, it's just, it's, it, it's the American dream in classic rock form, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the, the Polaroid engineer in his basement, uh, with his wife helping him ship and, uh, and hit up the labels, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, this, this was a family, it's a family project. Uh, yeah. that, that came about and uh, the kicker for this. And there's a couple of write-ups about this and interviews that I, I read with Schultz in interv- um, preparing for this, uh, for this episode 
that he maintained his job at Polaroid this whole time. Wow. Uh, while he, you know, he went on leave to mm. make the record. He, he, he took a couple yeah. of months off. He went back to Polaroid after, <laughs> after, you know, he had released the album. Well, the album comes out and within a couple of months is, has sold 200,000 copies and more than a feeling is starting to take off. It was Cleveland, yeah. Cleveland that first broke them. And then it went like nationwide, like, like wildfire within two weeks. And so, you know, so he's he's faced with the uh, going in and saying, uh, hey, guys, I have to put in my two week notice because uh, I just became a rock star. <laughs> uh, and apparently he did yeah. work his two weeks. He said that was a hard two weeks. <laughs> you know, he, he honored his two weeks notice. But, man, you know, that was that was tough. And so, I mean, this is this is a true um, American success story. On this episode, we defended the merits of Boston's much maligned classic debut album. For the next episode, we're going back to our second golden age of rock series and focus on the incredible transcendent year of 1966. Psychedelia is the order of the year, and while we will discuss the onslaught of songs and artists slash bands who injected acid-fried wonder into the rock and pop mainstream, three particular artists whose approaches to music were fundamentally changed in the post-LSD environment release generation-defining, genre-defying, and sonically and lyrically groundbreaking classics. The Beach Boys, Bob Dylan, and The Beatles. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you The Second Golden Age of Rock, 1966, A Tale of Three Albums. We, we're going to start talking about this album, Boston's Boston. We're going to do a track by track or song by song uh, reverence and, and, and run through and description and discussion. But before we get that, uh, there's really, I would say, the line of demarcation for whether you know Boston or, or, or remember Boston is about age 45. If yeah. you're, if you know, Arturo and I are both 48. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll admit that we're pushing 50. Uh, but if you're over the age of 45, uh, even if you think you don't know the eight songs on this record, you do because they are in perpetuity everywhere, as we said in the beginning of the uh, of, of this episode. If you are under the age of 45, you have probably heard of Boston, but have never been all that moved because, like we said, they're they're a cliche or, or they've become a uh, a synonym for bad rock. Like even yeah. pu- even when you know you talk about puddle of mud, you probably think about or it, the, the name Boston gets it gets evoked, you know. <laughs> and so uh, so again, if you're an old man like us, uh, this will be a uh, this will be a tribute. If you're younger, this will be an education. Uh, that said, Arturo. Take us, let's start going through this record uh, and uh, it's eight songs and about, I want to say 36 minutes uh, long as, as a record. And so take us through uh, song by song, starting with the biggest hit. Yeah. More than a feeling Boston's very first single off their very first album is their biggest hit unquestionably their signature song and arguably their greatest song. Here's a dart for all you indie hipster douchebags out there. Do you (laughs) love Nirvana or just like them? Well, guess what? The opening riff to Smells Like Teen Spirit is the exact same as the chorus riff to More Than a Feeling, but just sped up. 
Don't believe me? Kurt Cobain himself admitted it in several interviews before he died. And you can find those quotes online. Even this fact is selling the song short. From the majestic opening guitar arpeggio to Brad Delp's soaring arena scraping vocals that would influence everyone from Judas Priest's Rob Halford to Soundgarden's Chris Cornell to Muse's Matt Bellamy. And of course, that heroic headbanging chorus. It's one of the single greatest justifications for rock music being the genre that owned the middle of the 20th century and yeah. quite a bit of the end of it as well. Oh, yeah. And that famous chorus riff was itself stolen note for note from the Kingsmen's Louie Louie. You know, here's Boston. Uh, the, the chorus riff to more than a feeling. Dun, dun, dicka, dun, 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 Louie, Louie. Dun, 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 It's the yeah. same. Yeah, it, it basically is the same thing. It's a testament to the power of that riff as a core yeah. uh, spiritual uh, evoker of the rock and roll mm-hmm. thing. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's like the one kind of riff that dun, 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 dun. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, just yeah. just you know, yeah. uh, four four as expressed in dun dunce uh, <laughs> is, is pretty much what that riff is. Uh, I think the simpler you approach this record, the better. I, I very simply, it's a party record. It's it's kind of a party record, and yeah. so but it's it's then it, the songs are relatively simple, uh, done exquisitely, sophisticatedly well. So it's yeah. simplicity done with with a layer of complexity that's rarely mm-hmm. uh, been matched. Uh, the one thing I'll say about this song is that uh, Schultz had a real gift for layering acoustic guitars with electric guitars. Mm-hmm. And he's most famous for his overdubbing. And he never really overdubbed the acoustic guitars. But the acoustic guitars are so rich yeah. that, that they weave in and out with the electric stuff and they're underneath. And so it just adds a texture uh, yeah. to what he was doing. And I think that that's most uh, most evident in this song and the next song we'll talk about. Uh, yeah. So, but, and that riff is just crunchy as hell. And so yeah. it, it's a real contrast to have that like real kind of crunchy kick-ass riff with uh, with Brad Delp's uh, lack of, of testicular fortitude vocals. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I think he was a great singer. Anyway. Oh, he, oh, he was a great singer. I'm just saying, yeah. but, he, but, he, but he wasn't like, he, he wasn't the throatiest guy. No. no. Yeah. The next song, track two, Peace of Mind. Now, this album abounds with awesome riffs, not just the one on More Than a Feeling. The acoustic riff that kicks off Peace of Mind is no exception, like you alluded to, Chris, with the acoustic textures on this album. And the double-tracked lead guitar lines that grace the track throughout are exquisite. Never let it be said that Tom Schultz wasn't one of the most fluid, melodic players 1970s rock ever gave us. It also rocks with a loping, desperate urgency that matches the lyrics' desperate frustration with an increasingly consumerist society. Yes, I'm going all rage against the machine when discussing yes. Boston. Chris? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's pretty much it. That, that there, there is kind of a real. Uh, he he was a real sardonic bastard, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, oh, in, he was. in, in terms of in terms of his lyrics, that he just kind of, uh, you know, that this was his way of of uh, you know e- even a chemical engineer that worked for uh, for a big company could could stick it to the man. <laughs> and and so he had a lot of that mechanical kind of, mechanical engineer mechanical engineer what did i say chemical 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mechanical, chemical, whatever. It's Polaroid. Uh, you know, if, if you had to, you know, anything where you had to instantly develop film and you were yeah. a nerd, you probably worked for Polaroid. Uh, this uh, actually, this song has one of my favorite mishears in all of rock and roll. You know, when I talk about mishears, I'm talking about like, excuse me while I kiss this guy kind yeah. of stuff or, uh, or my, and my spirit is crying for Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, from Stairway to Heaven. Well, this one, it's, I don't care about FBI <laughs> as, as opposed to as opposed to be. I don't care about being left behind. It, yeah. it, it really sounds like I don't care about FBI. <laughs> uh, man, he's really against the man. Yeah, yeah, really. He, he really doesn't care about the FBI. What is he going to do? Like, <laughs> like go blow up a bank? You know, it's, it's just funny. No, but this song is great. Uh, I, I really love the uh, the the bridge, uh, the the double layered uh, uh, acoustic or excuse me, the electric <laughs> guitar bridge is really awesome. You know, the, yeah. with that double texture, it's just really, really fantastic. And, uh, one of those things, it's actually, a, it was a fun song to sing when rock band and guitar hero were still a thing 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, peace of mind is a really fun song to sing. Cause there are some high notes. Yes. On that song. <laughs> so good stuff. All right. Track three, foreplay segueing into long time. The first half of this piece, the foreplay part of the song, was written by Tom Schultz when he was still in graduate school uh, at MIT. And it clearly shows its debt to British prog rock titans like Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer with its complex organ riff. Uh, it's heavy as shit drum pattern signaling the beginning of something epic. You know, once the long time part of the song comes in, uh, it, it, it heralds another I want to break away song that peaks with another kick ass chorus riff. This time with the rest of the band stopping and nothing but hand clapping accompanying that yeah. chorus riff done acoustically. The implication being that this riff is so awesome. If it were done on electric guitar, its sheer power would damage your fucking speakers. Epic arena rock are what Boston are, are usually called, but dig deeper and you'll find prog rock with massive balls. Chris. Oh yeah. Yeah. This, this is, this is prog rock personified. And uh, it should be noted that it features one of two clavinet solos uh, <laughs> yeah. on, on this album. So more than one clavinet solo, that means you have some prog bona fides, uh, <laughs> just, but just some really lovely touches in the groove. There's like the end of the foreplay section, uh, when it starts to build up into the uh, into the riff or to the beginning of of long time, there's just some really neat uh, uh, keyboard notes and, and sort of guitar uh, sprinkles that are there, and it's just a real sense of drama. It it it's it's a kind of song that's made for headphones. Yeah, uh, totally. and so and it becomes a neat little rocker, like you said. There's those hand cla claps on loan from heaven. You know, yeah. it's a not quite queen level hand claps, but it's close. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. the, the kings of the hand claps, you know, queen were the kings of hand claps. Sure. But uh, a, a close second might be Boston, uh, you know, based on songs like this. And 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 that's the funny thing. Like you said, uh, they really did walk a fine line between prog rock and arena rock. Yeah. And which which is funny to say. And again, we kind of made this point earlier when you invented the damn thing and then you get accused of being derivative or yeah. being accused of being vanilla, uh, yeah. that, that, that's got a sting, you know? Yeah, it does. I'm sure Schultz to this day still gets pissed off when he gets derided in that way. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. Anyway, the next one, track number four, rock and roll band. On this track, Boston give a brief, if not slightly glorified biography of themselves playing around the Boston music scene. Is it self-aggrandizing and a bit self-mythologizing? Sure. But what is an aspiring arena rock band in the 1970s without a little hubris to carry them through, especially when the band rocks as convincingly as they do here? Yet another monster riff that kicks a song into high gear without wasting time. Yet another double-tracked Brad Delp vocal that peels paint off the walls. Oh, yeah. Yet another banger, even if it may be the most disposable track on the album. Chris? Yeah, even if it's disposable, it's also the closest thing that they come to Boogie Woogie on this yeah, record. I think the next one does, but I'll talk about that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying, you know, but, you know, but there's that. But, you know, but this one. You know, you know, this one just really has a swing, a, a swing to it. And it's just it's a it, it, it's basically a ditty. You know what I yeah. mean? It's 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 just a it's a, it's a, an amped up, ramped up, hyped up ditty uh, yeah. ab about their, you know, almost like a folk song about, yeah. it, you know, here we are on the ground doing our thing. And like you said, it, it's uh, almost like tongue in cheek mythologizing uh for that and but but i also uh i do like the uh we, this is one of my favorite double track uh delt vocals you know because mm. he you know he because he yelps in, a, in yeah. a few spots i mean there's some there's some <laughs> genuine yelping on there we're a rock and roll band <laughs> you know i mean it just yeah you know we, we we often do impressions of singers on this uh thing uh delp was at least good enough that we, we, we'll uh, we're sure to suck at it so there you go. Uh, you know, real, really, really good song. And, you know, it goes into the, you know, there's travelogue songs, there's band songs, you know, let's just put it this way. These guys are having a lot more fun than like turn the page. <laughs> you know? Well, come on, you leave poor Bob Seeger alone. All oh, right. He, <laughs> All right the there, next there he one. goes again. There he goes again. There he goes again. <laughs> All right. Track five, Smoking. Before Boston, most, if not all, big-sounding, arena-sized mainstream rock of the 1970s had a distinct bass in the blues. With the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, it went without saying. Despite keyboardist John Lord's best attempts to overwhelm the band with uh, classical music flourishes and affectations, Deep Purple, at their heaviest and most successful, still had a noticeable, noticeable bluesy foundation. Oh, yeah. Black Sabbath were a pioneering heavy metal band, but they were distinctly influenced by Cream, the prototypical heavy blues rock band. And Sabbath's is uh, Sabbath sludge metal dirges always felt bluesy, even even if they weren't exactly blues. Even the Who, who managed to be both proto power pop and proto punk, started their careers as an R and B and blues covers band. Boston were the first major 1970s American rock band who distanced themselves from the blues with a sleek slick, hyper-produced sound that owed more to prog rock, classical music, and classic pop songcraft than anything gritty or quote-unquote bluesy. Yet, even on this perfect debut album, Smokin', I think, is the only track on the album where Tom Schultz allows a little of the blues to come in uh, yeah. on the very ZZ Top-esque opening riff to Smokin'. Lyrically, it's admittedly a bit silly. 
boys night out on the town. Look out, mama. We're going to burn up the bars tonight. <laughs> but musically, it may be one of the most compelling. If you ever wanted to hear the boogie woogie of ZZ Top with that aforementioned sleek, slick studio sheen, predating ZZ Top's own Eliminator album by seven years, augmented by a distinctly Deep Purple-esque organ solo, a la Highway Star, then this is the jam for you. And this song does indeed jam, resplendent with multiple full band breaks that show off what is ostensibly Tom Schultz showing off his classically trained keyboard skills. This is also one of only two songs on the album not written entirely by Schultz, as a singer Brad Delp gets a co-write here. Chris? Yes, he does. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is definitely uh, dancey Boston. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a very dancey song and and good good call on the ZZ Top uh, compare. Yeah, that you know, like you said, this is uh, this predates Eliminator by seven years, so yeah. that there is something to be said for that. And yes, this is the second clavinet solo uh, mm. on this record, and and the best one. I mean, the the middle section of the song is just stunning. This actually is my favorite song on the record. Really? Uh, wow. You know, one because of this, because of that kind of swinging grandeur of yeah. of the choruses, and then that uh, that that overdub guitar lift on the uh, on the chorus. You know, smoking, <laughs> smoking, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know that's good. But but that middle section with the with the organ and the clavinet and everything building back up and then going back to the guitars uh, mm -hmm. is really really nifty. And uh, I can just imagine that he probably spent like a hundred hours just putting that thing together. You know, mm, like he was, he was, right. if you're a perfectionist, that that's a perfectionist dream uh, yeah. right there. So, uh, you know, good stuff. And again, like you said, you know, uh, you can't really call it corporate rock if they're talking about like smoking dope and hit, hitting the clubs. <laughs> yeah. All right. The next one, this is track number six. Hitch a ride. Escape, escape, escape. For most of this album, that's the underlying theme. Who cares, though, if it's this redundant when a song like Hitch a Ride, one of the softest and most tender songs in the Boston catalog, are, uh, are rendered with such blissful melodies, beautiful chord progressions, and, yes, believe it or not, lovely lyrical imagery evoking the New England region of the country in the middle of winter. The bridge erupts with rock muscle as that prog rock organ makes an appearance before Schultz's meticulously multi-track guitars settles things down into a mid-tempo groove with a gorgeous guitar solo that rides the track up to its graceful end. Chris? Yeah, ab absolutely. It's just, um, this is one of two bona fide power ballads on this record. And, uh, and especially it's one of the better vocal overdubs too on, on the chorus. Uh, and I will say this, I mean, this is not really the type of album that we listen to for the lyrics. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, Graham Parker, it ain't, you know, it's not <laughs> Mellencamp. It ain't, uh, yeah. but we do get an occasional gem, uh, from Schultz as a lyricist, like on this record, you know, it's got yeah. a sentimentality to it. It's really nice. It's easy. You know, he says life is like the coldest winter people freeze the tears. I cry. Words mm. of hail their minds are into. I've got to crack this ice and fly. Mm. Uh, so like you said, that escape and that longing for transcendence. I mean, that's 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 really that's a really nice uh, and, and really sort of deftly worded uh, sentiment yeah. uh, for that. So and, you know, again, it's 
the other thing too, this is another one of those things where you, when, when you hear hitch a ride, I hear FBI. Uh, <laughs> again. I, yeah. Again. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it, it's not quite as pronounced as it is on a uh, peace of mind, but you know, it's like, uh, I, I almost because the thing about it is, is, you know, the guided by voices has a song called Teenage FBI. Yeah. And so I almost instead of hitch right out here, Teenage FBI. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very it's very, very strange. And so uh, I, I don't I don't know. Maybe I'm too paranoid for my own good when I listen to this song or l- listen to this album. <laughs> but uh, but good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Number track number seven. Something about you. Now, Boston's Boston begins with more than a feeling, which aside from being a heavenly rock candy monster of a song, there's also an unabashed love song. That kind of romanticism goes away for the rest of the album until the last two tracks where Tom Schultz decides to show his sentimental side and beating heart amidst the layers of exquisitely dense guitars, both acoustic and electric, and intoxicating vocal harmonies, even if they're all done by one guy, Brad Delp, who multi-tracks himself to high heaven. Has there ever been a more touching, heartfelt love song that rocks just as hard as it is romantically emotive? That dichotomy is an aspect of Boston's, and by extension Schultz's, music that is much overlooked and frankly underrated. You know, there's something about you, goes the chorus. Well, there's something about yearning lyrics of pained romantic longing that go perfectly with expertly produced multi-tracked guitar lines that manage to reflect that yearning. Chris? Yeah, I mean, like I said, this is this is a song that rocks. But at the same time, if you had to make an argument that any song on this record is extraneous, it would be yeah. this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that this is eight of eight uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of that, because it's basically in a way it's peace of mind as a love song. Mm, uh, in yeah. terms of its dynamics, it doesn't doesn't necessarily have the acoustic guitars, but the uh, but the structure of it, uh, it it's got that it, it's it's got that kind of screamy, yelly, but but also pretty. So it's it's screaming right. on the one uh, on the one hand and uh, pretty on the other. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like you said, these guys really had a sentimentality to them. Uh, sure, you, you know, you saw it in more than feeling. You saw it in Hitch a Ride, but you really see it on these two, like you said, these two last songs. And so it it might be arena rock, it might be prog rock, but it's lovely. Uh, it, yeah. it it at at at, it, at its high points in terms of uh, you know the singing and the lyrics, it's 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 definitely it's got a dreamy quality to it. It it's got a longing. It's uh, in a way it, it I guess it makes sense that it would guy come from a guy who hung out in his basement nonstop. You know, <laughs> it's like I'm I'm longing for a world where I can leave my basement. <laughs> well, he, he sure made it. He made enough money to do so if he wanted well, to. Well, yeah. Or, or, or conversely, he made enough money that he never had to leave it again. Because, <laughs> yeah. of all the shit, because all the shit he could afford. Yeah. You know. All right. The last track, track eight. Let me take you home tonight. Quite yep. possibly my favorite song on this excellent album. This is the yep. perfect example of what would be cliche and sentimental in the corniest of ways in most other songs. However, with Tom Schultz's widescreen rock supernova orchestra in the background and Brad Dulp's macho tempered by sweetness vocal delivery, the lyrics transcend cheesiness and Let Me Take You Home Tonight becomes an outlier in the canon of 1970s hard rock. 
It's a song that starts out as a moving power ballad, but ends in an intense galloping rocker of sexual yet not quite perverted desire. That's a difficult trick to pull out, but Boston manages to pull it out in one in one of rock's all-time great closing album tracks. It's a deceptively tricky chord progression that's beautifully elliptical. If you play it on acoustic guitar, you feel you can play it forever. Uh, the build-up to the fast, rocked-out coda is smoothly done and doesn't feel forced. And what a coda it is. Oh, it's yeah. the most full-throttle Boston ever gets in its sound, and it fades out just as it takes off. Talk about leaving the listener wanting more. Listen, I get it. When Delp sings, let me take you home tonight, or I want to show you sweet delight, or I just got to get loose with you tonight, <laughs> what he really means is I want to fuck your brains out. Yep. Yet- it doesn't feel that way, the way he sings it, and the delicate emotional guitar layers behind him betray a tenderness that goes beyond simple salaciousness. A song that is a little more than it seems is a perfect ending for an album that is quite a bit more than what a lot of people give it credit for. Chris? And yet the coda is the sound of fucking a woman's brains out. <laughs> yeah. Let me Take yeah, exactly. It's rousing. It's <laughs> romping. It's 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 like you said, it's full throttle. It's, yeah. it's like one giant penis, you know, <laughs> is, is what it is. But before that, yeah, like you said, there is a tenderness uh, to that song. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as as rock power ballads goes, it's 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 one of the prettiest yeah. uh, of that. And it's very indicative of that era. You know, 1976, there were bands that were attempting or wanting to do songs like that. But uh, Schultz kind of perfected the formula. Yeah. Uh, on on this song, and uh, like you said, hell of a note to end the record with because it, it's almost gospely. You yeah. know, there's almost a gospel fervor. Yeah. You know, that, that, I mean, yeah. that, I mean, another. It's not even a hand clap. It's more like a foot stomp kind yeah. of a quality to it. And like you said, it, the way it fades into mm -hmm. in, into the into the the great unknown is is really really neat. So I'm telling you, this album is really note perfect. You know, it starts with those little acoustic notes. And it ends with this sort of rousing gospel that, again, fades into oblivion. And so just from from the very first note to the very last note, there's just a perfect and just whoever sequenced it, however, they came up with those eight songs, you know, all of all of the emotions, all of the uh, uh, all of the wise guyness, all mm, you know, just everything. Yeah. It's, it's self-contained. It's just there is not a dead note on this record at all. Right. So. All right. So that's our yes, tribute. Chris. Yeah, that is our tribute to and running through this album. Uh, if you've never heard it, please hit the the streaming sites. I'm sure that there's probably a full album upload somewhere out there on sure. uh, YouTube because it's not like uh, the copyright police are out in full force for Boston. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, may maybe so because, you know, they're at 17 times platinum uh, for yeah. uh, for for this record. But anyway, so this wasn't the only album that Boston ever did nope. but nope. you know but remember we did a and we did a episode early on in the life of this podcast called the one and dunners mm -hmm. and uh boston kind of could have uh arguably been on that list uh right. or to take us through the aftermath and the rest of the history what happened after this album blew up and and yeah. what happened and where did where did boston head from here it's not quite a sad story because, you know, Tom Schultz has got money to burn and yes, he's still he alive doing his thing. Yep. But the, the Boston story has taken many twists and turns. 
1978, Tom Schultz was again mostly a one-man act as he recorded mostly everything on the follow-up album by himself except for the vocals and the drums. When the album Don't Look Back came out in the summer of 1978, it was an immediate hit that went on to sell roughly 7 million copies, which was still about half of what the debut album sold. Yes, you heard that correctly. An album selling 7 million copies was half of what the previous album sold. To put that in perspective, Green Day's Dookie, their classic 1994 album, sold 8 million copies. Boston's much-ignored, mediocre follow-up sold almost as much. Mm. <laughs> and mediocre was exactly what Tom Schultz thought of the record. He felt both the record company and his management – by now a bickering partnership between Charlie McKenzie and Paul Ahern, pressured him to rush a follow-up album. He swore he would take his time recording a third album. And boy, did he. <laughs> the third Boston album, titled Third Stage, wouldn't come out until 1986. In the years leading up to the album's release, Schultz got involved in a legal dispute with co-manager Ahern, who claimed he owned a percentage of all songs from the second album onward. He also told uh, Schultz, told the members of the band to go off on and do their own solo stuff or any other project because, uh, well, shit was going to take a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. Also during this time, CBS, which owned Epic Records, sued Schultz for $60 million for breach of contract due to not releasing a new Boston album on time. The lawsuit was decided eventually in Schultz's favor, and Boston officially moved to MCA Records, which released Third Stage. Lo and behold, the album was a huge success, topping the Billboard album chart, selling 4 million copies, and the power ballad Amanda being a huge hit that went straight to number one. The Boston touring band of 1987 to 88 just contained Tom Schultz and Brad Delp from the original lineup. Another eight years would go before go by before another Boston album would come out, this time supposedly due to extensive renovations being made to Schultz's home studio. Delp left the band during this period, and with new singer Fran Cosmo in tow, Boston released Walk On in 1994. It went platinum by selling 1 million copies, but it only charted at number seven and had no real hit singles. Delp would return to the band, though, as one of two co-singers for the duration of Boston's 1995 tour. Guess what? Another eight years would pass yeah, before Boston put out another album, this time 2002's Corporate America on independent label Artemis Records. The album bombed, but Boston toured from 2003 through uh, 2004. By this point, Boston were just Tom Schultz plus Brad Delp plus a cast of interchangeable musicians, and they were a legacy act with most people paying tickets to hear the band play all the songs from the first album and maybe Amanda. <laughs> Tragedy became a part of the Boston story in 2007 when Brad Delp committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning at his home in New Hampshire. A version of Boston with Michael Sweet, the lead singer hmm. of the Christian rock band Striper, Perfect. filling Delp's shoes uh, toured in 2008. 
New vocalist David Victor was brought in for a tour in 2012 and the recording of a new album, this time with 11 years spanning between albums, uh, would finally culminate and it would come out in 2013 called Life, Love and Hope, released on another indie label, Frontiers Records. More tours would follow from 2014 through 17 with varying lineups and varying lead singers and Schultz even hinted back in 2017 that a new album might be in the works. That album still hasn't come out, but who cares at this point, Chris? Yeah. And if uh, his history is any indication, that means it'll drop in 2025 because that means it'll have been <laughs> eight, eight years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's what we uh, that, that that's what we need to kind of go on. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you said, sad story with Brad Delp from what I've read. Uh, he uh, uh, committed suicide. The way he did is he, he lit two charcoal grills in his bathroom uh while sealing off the the door you know the you know the the the, the bottom of the door and the, the doorknob yeah. and all that i'm just like man you you really got to be in bad shape to put in two charcoal grills you know <laughs> i mean I, I would hope that he like cooked himself up a couple of uh, hamburgers so at least he went out uh, at least he went out satiated yeah you know i i know i shouldn't make these jokes but anyway uh yeah and so I mean, interesting history with this band. I mean, how do, how do you follow up one of the greatest albums ever made? How do you follow up a huge, gigantic arena uh, rock juggernaut? Uh, how do you uh, follow up becoming your own cliche? Uh, right. Not easily, although they did get a number one song uh, 10 years later. So more power to them there. And so this uh, kind of segues into our, our, our final discussion here, Art. Uh, and then we'll we'll take turns on this. How would you articulate the legacy of this album by Boston, the self-titled record Boston? I think we I, we both alluded it to, and I did earlier. Um, Boston in the 1970s, they were the first major big like arena cock rock band that didn't really owe that much to the blues. They were a bit divorced from that. Like I said, they were more married to classical music, progressive rock, and classic pop songcraft. And uh, also, like I said, you mentioned bands like Styx and Foreigner and Journey and all that crap. Well, they they kind of were like, they followed in Boston's footsteps. You know, let's not blame Boston for that. <laughs> no, no, we can't blame Boston for that. And you that's know. exactly what was going to be my point, is that the idea is that Boston taught the Kansases and the Journeys and the Triumphs yeah. Right. And I, I guess you could go on with a with a few other bands uh, too, yeah. you know, like uh, like ah hell, I don't know who comes out of that. REO Speedwagon. Yes, a, another would, one. Yeah, would be, would be another one. Even though I think they, they predated, uh, but they reinvented themselves in the in the vein of a Boston, or right. or no, let me rephrase it in the vein of Boston, not right. a Boston, the Boston. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so you know, let, let let let's not fault the teacher for mm. the for the horseshit of the students. Right, right. Uh, and so you have to do that. And then there's there's another thing too. I think the uh, another one of their legacies are uh, is the fact that their uh, their admiration was not able to be sustained. Mm. Uh, that they're yeah. one of these bands that you know. I I like to think that we are something of a public service. Yeah, uh, this podcast and podcasts like ours sure. that, that do this sort of rock history uh, discussion. Mm. And one of the reasons we exist is for albums like Boston's Boston mm. to kind of give them a new form, to give them a new shine, to kind of put them on on the stage and reintroduce 
uh, a couple of generations to some of this mm. great stuff that might not get uh, that get uh, the, the love that it should. And a, a testament to this is if you kind of look at is at this and contrast it or put it next to ACDC's Back in Black, which is mm. another one of those classic rock, you know, uh, gigantic monolith, huge, you know, yeah. like awesome, uh, awesome albums. Uh, in that list of RAAA uh, most certified albums of all time, ACDC's Back in Black is fourth yeah. with uh, 25 times platinum. The only three records ahead of it are the greatest hit 71 to 75 album by the Eagles, Michael Jackson's Thriller, and the Eagles Hotel California hmm. are, are the only three albums that are ahead of ACDC's Back in Black. Well, at one time, I would say about 25 years ago, uh, Back in Black and Boston were like neck and neck. I think mm. they were like number six and number seven at one point where uh, uh, ACDC's Back in Black was at like 15 or 16 and Boston was at like 15 or 14. Well, right. ACDC's continued to go stratospheric while Boston kind of stalled out uh, from that. Now, granted, they have added a couple of, of digits to their number, but it's not the same thing as ACDC. You know, I mean... Yeah. You know, like shoot the thrill will always be a licensing uh, coup more than a yeah. feeling, not necessarily anymore. Mm. Uh, yeah, obviously, they're still plastered on classic rock. Tom Schultz probably still gets seven figures in royalties just from his radio. Yeah. Play. Uh, but it's not they, they they kind of lost that momentum and probably because of the weight of the jokes yeah. and, and the weight of the derision and the weight of that. Oh, well, you know, these guys sound like Boston, therefore they suck. That, know, that, that's and, hurt that's hurt a lot of bands it really has yeah, and it's like a, the, uh, a lot of the hair metal slash glam metal bands from the 1980s they got hurt by that too we did an episode on it yeah. <laughs> you know, death by nirvana <laughs> yeah absolutely and and or like how motley crew uh became a, a parody of motley crew <laughs> yeah another <laughs> I mean, band that kind of yeah. lost their legacy a bit uh, uh, their legacy lost a bit of luster's van halen believe it or not yeah I, no absolutely which is too bad i mean you know eddie I mean, there's been some renewed interest uh, over the last few years. I mean, Van Halen one has mm -hmm. has gotten some momentum, and that's since Eddie died. Was it three years now? Yeah. Uh, but it's since Eddie died. There's been some momentum for Van Halen one, but they don't get the love that they deserve uh, because of that. Because there was some suckiness at the end, because of all the shtick with their front men and yeah. in and out, in and out with between Sam Gary Sharon from Extreme. Well, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, okay, with the exception of him. <laughs> but like Hagar and, and, and Roth keep like they're, they're, they're these interchangeable, uh, interchangeable. <laughs> they definitely were yeah, inter interchangeable, cheesy motherfuckers uh, yeah. that were just in and out. And so I mean, who knows? Maybe they were victims of their own excess uh, after a while. But but in Boston's case, you know, Schultz was never I mean. Schultz probably would have never made it if, it if he was relying on MTV, you know, ugly yeah. six foot six Sasquatch guy uh <laughs> probably wouldn't have done so well but uh and you know he was he's not reclusive per se but he is private he gives he gives a lot of interviews <laughs> he does give a lot of interviews so he's not reclusive but he is private you know yeah. you would you wouldn't recognize him in a lineup to save your life and i think right. that that's part of it too is that you know you let the music stand on its own well for a social media culture and for a look at me culture and for sort of you know legacy media uh, culture. And I call that legacy media because how, why is Guns N' Roses still as relevant as they are? Because they're still out there on the road and Axel is still making a fool of himself, you know? Yeah. So 
Yeah, it's really it's really too bad because this album is fabulous. Absolutely fabulous and note perfect. And uh, it didn't make RS's uh, Rolling Stones 500 greatest albums of all time list uh, this time around. Uh, but it should have. Uh, yeah, maybe the back half. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily put in the top 250, but it belongs it, on that list. It, I, I'm, I'm, I'm currently uh, in the middle of making my own personal 500 greatest studio albums of all time. And yeah. Boston, this this Boston album is definitely in the in the low 400s. Put it that way. Yeah, I got you. And it, it definitely belongs there. So we definitely want you to check this album out. And we definitely want to uh, hear from you about this. Join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. We actually had a new member from uh, Nepal join this week. Oh, nice. Yeah, go figure. Uh, so we're, we're, we're in the deepest, darkest recesses of Asia. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we have a fan. And so uh, you can check that out at uh, facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also, we want to hear your impressions of this record. If you're not familiar with it, go out and get it or go out and stream it on Spotify or, or Apple, like <laughs> or, you know, Apple or, you know, you know, or, or those types of things or even YouTube. Like I said, you just do just do a search for Boston full album. It'll probably come up uh, and tell us about that and write us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we are still on Twitter, although not as much as we were because it's become a, uh, an alt-right cesspool. Uh, you know, even like the way that they've made the, uh, you, you know, the, 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 when you scroll, you know, they, they subtly put some like nasty, stupid stuff in there. So, but we're still on there and we still like Jason Isbell's feet. So there's that. 